Grow CFO is where finance leaders grow together. Join thousands of like-minded professionals using Grow CFO to access the combined knowledge and experience of the finance leader community. You can join us today at growcfo.net. Hello and welcome to the Grow CFO show. I'm your host, Kevin Appleby, and today I've got with me Tony Betts. Tony is a senior finance leader in the financial services industry. And Tony's going to talk to us about her career and how she got there as part of the series we've been running on on Roots to CFO. And we're going to talk as well on top of that about some of the, the experience that Tony's had in system transformation and people transformation to make changes in the finance function. So I think we're in for an interesting podcast today. So, Tony, welcome to the Grow CFO Show. Kevin, lovely to be here. Thank you. So, Tony, tell us a little bit about you. Where are you today? So, I'm literally two weeks away from starting a new group FD role, which was going to be the successor for the CFO. And that's been something that I've been pushing for for the the last 13 years, um, working in private equity businesses, being good number twos for the CFO. And obviously, the Bro CFO content has been helping me with getting to that job and fulfilling that ambition. You're arriving in that group finance director role as a result of being on the Future CFO program. Yes, absolutely. And having that ambition and being supported by the content that the Bro CFO platform gives me. Brilliant. Brilliant. I'll, I'll give you the check for, for the, the, the advertising later. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I'll send the bill. I'll send the bill. <laughs> um, so, Tony, thinking about that journey, though, it's been a lot more than, than just the, the last few months as part of the program. Where did this career start? So I started with the ambition of knowing that I wanted to be in finance, wanted to be an accountant, not really being clear about what an accountant was probably at, at that point. Why? Um, Why did you want to be an accountant? Because I was, I was just brilliant at maths and some of the analytics particularly at the school and college I went to there was a lot of individual teachers that really helped do sort of cultivate that analytical mindset and get involved with how you sort of look at not only the sort of education side but actually how you reflect that back into the businesses so looking at different businesses in the industry and I think they just inspired me to utilize that skill set that I already that naturally came to me and actually directing me in, into a career that I was almost inevitably then going to be successful on. I can see a similarity having looked at your LinkedIn profile going way back. And I think we both went off to university to do degrees in accounting. Mine was joint with economics, but uh, straight into that direction from a very early age. Yeah. And I think Again, I suppose a lot of that came back to some of the support that I got from teachers and counsellors at the career counsellors at, at the time. Um, I think it was that particularly in that sort of those sort of years before the millennium, it was very much about there's still this sort of thing about doing maths or doing English rather than actually just going straight into the into the career that you wanted. And and when I first started looking at A levels in particular, there was this sort of just do English and maths because that's the sort of things that you need to go into accountancy. Whereas, hopefully, luckily, I got directed into well, actually, if you want to do accountancy, do accountancy. If you want to do business, do business. And yeah, so went to the university and did that. And, and I think that sort of 
allowed me to bounce into that the professional qualification outside of the university quite quickly so transitioning into what was quite scary going into audit and having a full-time job as well as doing this scary professional qualification that yes you got released into into classes and got the time to do that but actually it was you know it would have been a huge culture shock if I hadn't had that that sort of more natural progression of having accountancy behind me already. Yeah. So you've left university. You're quite, you're studying to be a chartered accountant. So you're doing audit in a firm in practice. Yes, absolutely. Who was that? Uh, Baker Tilly. So uh, now RSM. Yes. I'm um, really good. I think it was it was a great opportunity to go into that type of size accountancy firm at the time. I think there is this sort of natural instinct that everyone talks about the sort of big four accountancy firms and actually some of the other accountancy firms that get sort of, get sort of overlooked and actually the Baker Tilly in particular not only was I the only person in my year but actually because of the breadth of what they did as an accountancy firm I ended up getting the ability to go into very to lots of different subject matter experts rather than just going into uh, what can happen with some of the, the sort of big four is you get go into specialisms very quickly. So having that sort of broad understanding and broad view and being able to develop very quickly at Baker Tilly definitely enabled me to to get that decision to say once I got qualified and within a year of me becoming qualified, I know I, I knew I needed to get into the commercial world and actually help businesses do the change rather than audit the change. I'm seeing huge, huge parallels here. It's I qualified with BDO in their Newcastle office. And really that had grown out of being a local practice in the area that had joined the group. So still dealing with lots and lots of family businesses. And the experience you got through going and preparing the accounts, doing the audit, doing the tax computations, you, you saw the whole lot. And it was in the days before anybody really had computer systems. You're doing it all by hand. So you really, really got to know what double entry bookkeeping was about. And you really wow. got to know what it was what it was about to reconcile an account. I think that learning without specialising anything was, was really invaluable. But like you, I stepped off after a year post-qualifying into industry. So tell me about that. Yeah, so, I mean, I think it was, you know, on reflection, it was definitely the best decision to make. I joined, my first role was at First Choice as a finance manager. I had an absolutely amazing CFO that I reported to and her ability to trust me enabled me to sort of, you know, learn, make mistakes and actually thrive and got involved in, again, that sort of lots of different areas of, the sort of commercial and the uh, governance and control roles. But obviously, again, First Choice was a, a holiday company at that time. And, and I think during my four years there, they actually, there was a lot of consolidation in the market. So there was less and less opportunities, but that didn't mean that, again, that sort of first role and having somebody who's such an inspiring leader, giving you the breadth to, to be able to make mistakes and learn on the job just bounced me to the next stage and to the next role, um, which was at American Express. And I've got to say, American Express, whether everyone loves them, hates them, as if anyone lives around Brighton as I am, pretty much 80% of the sort of professional workforce in Brighton have worked at American Express at some time. 
sponsored by them, the stadium is called the Amex Stadium. Yes. Exactly, exactly. But their leadership program in particular, and this I think comes back to, to some of those soft skills that a lot of the a lot of the sort of grow CFO members are, are talking about, you know, not necessarily having all of those sort of tools in their in their toolkit. Their leadership program was second to none, talked about how you supported your team and again putting people first and that if your team were working effectively, then sort of everything else followed that. Lots of things around executive presence and gravitas. And I think because I hit that in my 20s, I was just a sponge at that age. And really that sort of, I definitely put my leadership skills down to American Express and the, their great leadership program. Because without that, I don't think I would be the, the well-rounded individual that I am today. It's funny that there are defining experiences you have and defining training programs you go on. And they really, really do make a difference. And I'm thinking of just sitting here doing this podcast with you now. The sort of interviewing skills that I got all came out of a course in Coopers and Libran called Process Consulting, which was a fantastic week away in a hotel on the South Coast, not far from where you are in Brighton, where we did nothing but interview each other in small groups in order to extract information. Those people skills are just so, so invaluable. I think especially when, as finance people, we spend too much of our day, rather than talking to other people, talking to our Excel spreadsheets. Absolutely. And I think unless you unless you throw yourself into it, I mean, it's always, I think it's almost that learn trait. You've got to learn how to be comfortable with some of these things. And actually, if you don't invest in pushing yourself and, and getting involved in these things, whether that's you know, having difficult conversations or presenting to audiences that over 200 people plus you're never going to be able to be comfortable with those I remember one part of the training program at American Express there was an individual who from a expertise level was absolutely second to none but actually they they were just so scared of presenting and and just just not sure how to behave particularly with their body language and I remember the trainer sending them in and out of the room about 10 times just to get that first walking into the room actually right and and I mean he was amazing by the end of the training session was quite brutal and obviously it was quite it was very uncomfortable for him but you you wouldn't recognize him today for, for being able to go through that sort of training program and really putting himself out there yeah and that that's something that is is a very common issue with a lot of people i know back way back when i was working in industry and ici i was absolutely petrified to start off with getting up in front of a group of people and presenting something wouldn't think years later that as a management consultant that would be the bread and butter of the job that i was doing but again a similarly brutal process i I think that to develop you have to regularly step outside of your comfort zone not so far out that you drown, but sufficiently to to open yourself up to, to new skills, new experiences. I think Catherine, one of the mentors, had shared that book around feel the fear and do it anyway. And I think that, you know, I've read I've now read that uh, last month and you know it whether you read it for your career, whether you read it for a, a social particular thing like a social relationship, so good. Such a good book. I'd definitely recommend that. I'll drop a link to that in the show notes. So, American Express, defining point in your career, leadership program, but American Express didn't last forever. What next? 
so after being at American Express for, for five years, again, I'd got a lot out of that role, but it's such a huge company, a huge machine. And as an individual that's very ambitious and wants to do, you know, wants to achieve great things and be involved in great things, um, you're such a small cog in a, a huge machine that I felt it was good for me to now move into different companies where I can really make an impact and really influence uh, business strategy and, and really influence how the business actually actually improves. So looked at lots of different roles at that time. I probably went through 25 different companies interviewing. And actually, it was the point in my career where I was really particularly selective over what type of company it would and what, what I could then naturally see as my next step rather than just going, I don't want to be at American Express, a big company. Let's just go to the first company that offers me a job. Um, so I started at a company called Aquinity, um, which at the time when I first joined Aquinity, it was only half the size. It was literally six months later because the two bit, there was two businesses that merged and it was the right company for me at that time. It sort of leveraged the financial services background from American Express, but enabled me very quickly to transition with a clear roadmap of becoming the FD, having a transformation program and really getting under the skin of the business and being able to influence and actually from the first year and ended up influencing and talking to the CEO on a regular basis, probably daily basis. And the exposure that I got from that, both from doing full finance transformations when these two individual businesses six months later uh, were acquired and need to be merged. So there was a whole finance transformation around people, processes, uh, systems to supporting them in the last year of my career there on setting up completely a new sales operation and, and CRM system. So actually they had no sort of coherent way of growing the business and seeing where their sales order potential could come from and having the chairman at that time identify me as a the only person in the organization that could do this job and set all of this up from scratch from bid teams a new CRM team get a sales order book to hopefully sell the business um, with a with a clearer value and growth strategy organically um, yeah just again just not having this particularly I think through that job and my up to my current job it's almost like you don't worry about having a particular role spec and only doing things it's it almost happened organically you have this sort of generic finance director or let's get involved in a transformation and then actually you can make it as big or as small as as you want to and have as much or or as little impact as you can so Tony it sounds very much as though that role post-American Express has turned you into a a real deep expert in finance transformation. Yes, absolutely. So again, not just not just that finance transformation huge program, but then continuing to add to that. I think people think finance transformations are a sort of one-off task, but actually as you evolve and businesses become more complex and and particularly with the size, you know, we continue to transform and continue to add things to that, whether that was things like consolidation tools, because you recognize that actually you've got a whole transformation, but you need, there's still these bolt on things that you can do. Um, to, as I said, then becoming using those finance transformation skills to actually look at a whole sales and bid transformation, including rolling out a CRM. So it's massively, it gave me so much experience, but it enabled me to also transfer that to other areas as well. It wasn't just, it's not just within the finance box that I could do that because it's repeatable 
processes and improvements that you can put to finance, to HR, to the businesses, to any area. And certainly that that's my experience. That once you start down a transformation journey, that journey never really finishes. Mm. That's something else and something else. But something that we've done a series within GrowCFO and Future Finance Functions looking at change, managing change, taking people on a journey through that process. When you're in that level of change over such a long period, impacting nearly every area of the business, taking the people along with you is going to be a challenge. So what, what sort of advice can you give us on that angle? I think the, the first area, and again, this isn't necessarily something I got right straight away first time, but actually, again, these things, you, know, you, you sort of reflect on lessons learned as you go through your career. I think the key thing was really getting the right structure. So having that clear view of actually what that structure is. And I think the the best advice would be to not get too wedded by what the structure is currently. Because I think people think about the individuals and how they can move the blocks around rather than sort of going almost like a zero-based budgeting type view of actually what does that structure need to be? And then how can you support and develop your team into potentially going into those new roles if there are areas where maybe you've got too much resource uh, and you're trying, particularly with automation, a lot of your back office shared service functions can generally you know, mass significantly reduce, if, particularly if they've been very manual. Um, so like accounts payable teams, for example, I think when I was at Aquinity, it went from a team of 10 because there wasn't things like the optical character reading um, to actually having two people, which included some of the sort of payment cash management. But actually by recognising that sort of clear, what does the structure need to be? You could sort of support where people's skill sets were and develop them as the transformation was going. So actually they they improved in their career and they still you know, had a they had a new role at the end of that that time. I think the other thing, the other major thing is having that clear shared vision of the journey and making sure that the, the team are, are part of that discussion. It's not a, it's not just a, ta-da, here it is. This is what we're going to do. Uh, it's being clear about actually what your ultimate end goal is and how you do that journey. Cause a lot of it is about, you know, I don't want to time box it, but you know, it could be the first six months a year, depending on the size of the transformation is about getting those core foundations. Um, correct you know the second year may be about continuous improvement but ultimately you still need to know and everybody needs to be clear on what that sort of best practice is at the end and it may be that it's from a commercial finance perspective one of the things I've used quite a lot is about having the ultimate aim is to be that trusted business partner for the business and that everyone's clear about what that is and what that means actually they can see why you're going on that journey and I've always found that the best way to get people on board in that journey is to involve them in creating the vision. Don't give the vision to them. We want to be a trusted business partner. Okay, team, what do you think trusted business partner means? And gather their thoughts and design the, the role or the, the concept around them. Yeah, and I think one of the, uh, one of the techniques I've used, used for that before, because I think people get a bit worried about almost being too much of a diplomatic society and never get into the answer. I think it doesn't mean that by doing doing that that you don't have a almost a draft yourself, but just make sure that you don't talk about your 
what you've put on your draft until you've almost gone through a journey with your team. So you can still have that in your back pocket. And once you're getting that sort of listening piece, make sure you navigate people into particular areas if you know it's becoming too too much of a, a sort of think tank and not that solution but actually ultimately as long if you bring people on the journey inevitably by prompting them those questions they're probably going to get to the same answer that you already thought about you know a month before but actually it's so important to do that and invest that in your people to bring them on that change journey what about the people necessarily on the journey some of those examples you've mentioned you've possibly got rid of an accounts payable team. Some people you'll be able to upscale, move on into other roles. Others, I'm guessing you won't, and therefore you might lose. Or I can also think of the scenario that you've had an old system. Somebody in your organization is the the expert in how that system works. They might not be particularly senior in the organization, but as soon as they find out that that system that they're the expert in is going to disappear, they feel incredibly disenfranchised. How do you deal with those sorts of individuals? I think I've got two really good examples about that. I think, as you said, that the AP team was probably the, the most significant and rougher of the journeys. The team or particular couple of people within the team had basically got into that sort of quite aggressive militant there's no way I'm doing this. There's no, you know, you're putting me out of a job, make me redundant now and started being a bit of a terrorist, particularly with the project as well. So almost putting blockers in the way all along that journey. And I think because of the fact that we were doing it as as teams, so particularly the AP team, we made sure we got all of those 10 people on that same journey. It almost, rather than just isolating those individuals and putting them to one side or trying to deal with them separately, actually bringing them along with everybody else on that journey, other people started becoming less tolerant with them and actually sort of said, well, if you, you know, if you don't want to be here, why don't you just go? And therefore, it wasn't the management or the company or whatever these lovely titles people like to give yeah. you. Yeah. It was actually their peers that they'd worked with for you know, five or 10 years saying to them, you know, you're not helping here. We're, we're sort of, we're all clear about what this journey is. If you don't want to be here, go. And although, again, it was harder work, the organic outcome of that was actually a, a positive one because people didn't want to, people could see that there was a, a good outcome for them and they didn't want these disruptors to, to be there to stop them ultimately getting to this new idea of, of the vision of what, where we needed to go. So that was the, the sort of disruptor. I think the other one was actually at Study Group, whereas which was my last company. When I first started there, they, they really weren't clear about what they need, what FP&A or commercial finance, um, what good practice was. And they were very open when I first started there that you know it was going to literally be, you're the one who's got all those skill sets and experience, you're coming in and you can design it from scratch. And actually, they then handed me over the two team members at the time that were there. And they said, these are the two FP&A managers. And at best, they were management accountants who were constantly looking in the past. And actually getting them, because they were, they were more senior, they'd been uh, in the industry for, for sort of 30 years, a lot of the sort of journey of getting that vision was slightly harder to get across to them but actually what happened is one of them ended up going I'm going to retire because I can see that this is the new way that it's going to work and as much as I want to resist this I can see what great outcomes it's going to do for the business 
and I can see how much opportunity it is for other people within the finance team. And again, the other management accountant actually again decided to move on, move on themselves. And it was it was then basically coming to me to say, you know, you've been so clear about this vision. We know what you're trying to do. We're just not the right people to do it. And actually, we're the lady who was retiring and just said, I'm too old to be retrained. <laughs> um, I'm not sure that was true. I think I really, really don't accept that. <laughs> but she, I think she wanted, she basically wanted to go on holiday and had sort of had a very, very successful career. And yeah, I suppose it, it has, particularly in that area, there's, I think, and I suppose we should always reflect back that technology everywhere has changed significantly and fast. But actually, even in the finance team, some of the, the finance world 20 years ago, even 15 years ago, maybe even 10 years ago, is completely different to what it is now. We've got so much automation. Um, you know, we expect so much more diverse skill sets from finance professionals. And that soft skills in particular is coming up more and more because we are the glue sometimes that keeps the business operating or, or navigating between t- different functions. So you know, there is more and more pressure on us and, and expectations are higher. So, Tony, you've got to where you are now by having great soft skills, great people skills. What would you be saying to other finance leaders that maybe aren't quite in the position you're in around developing these things? Um, I think you've. I would just really push yourself to commit to actually spending time doing this. I know it's uncomfortable, and I think again, the Catherine has run a session yesterday on on the soft skills. And only three of us, three of us are on it. Um, so I'm sure that there are a lot of people in the network that really should be on that. But again, it's that I think unless you actually commit to it and say, I'm going to push myself to do it and it will be uncomfortable, particularly when you're having things like difficult conversations or uh, you're challenging, challenging some of your team members that you know, having those sort of great skills of effective communication, being able to to say things very clear and concise, having that great body language so it's not you know aggressive. I think all of those sort of skills we sort of take take for granted, and actually just by committing to a, you know whether you've got an hour a month or whether you've got a day a month that you can commit to, I think really challenging yourself to put yourself out there to not only utilize what's on the Grow CFO network, but also just put yourself in those situations that maybe you you would normally sit back on or not step forward on, uh, particularly in, in your businesses. If there's a meeting that actually you feel comfortable that, that you have the right content to do, then practice your presentation skills or practice your communication skills or have that challenging conversation with that individual in the business that always winds you up or you never get as much as you want out from those people. I think that the thing about soft skills is you can read about it in books. You can attend the odd session, but there is no substitute at all from from just getting in there and having a go. And don't be afraid of getting it wrong, because actually we probably learn more Mm. by getting in a situation and not quite getting it right and knowing to do something slightly different next time. Actually, having a mentor, I think, is incredibly useful in that area where you you can talk about something that might have happened and maybe get some alternative strategies for how to do it next time. Somebody who's been there, got the T-shirt, and has made probably many more mistakes than you have in order to get that badge that allows them to be a mentor. Absolutely. I mean, I think the other thing is recording yourself. I mean, 
was obviously on the a session with Chris and and I watched myself back. And one of the silly things I was doing is I hadn't cut my fringe. So I kept on flicking my fringe all over the place. And I wouldn't have even realized that I was doing that unless I went back on that. So again, use your own iPhones, Androids, whatever you've got, and just film yourself. But at the end of the day, you know, it's, you're the only one that's seeing it. And you can just see particularly some of those, those body language things that you just won't notice until you see yourself doing it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And funnily enough, I recorded a podcast earlier today with Susanna where we were, we spent the entire podcast talking about personal awareness. You know, how it's important to be, be so aware of how you are. And we started talking about feedback from other people. We did start about sort of talk about listening to yourself. We did talk about gut feelings and that personal awareness can be so, so valuable going forward. And we're actually talking about it not just in the context of, of presenting and managing people. And so we talked about it in the context of burnout as well, recognizing those traits in yourself that's, that aren't necessarily getting you to the place you want to be. Mm. I think as well on finance professionals, you know, we, we, are lo- we, we sort of practice and, and think about presentations that we've got to go to thinking it's all about the content that we're actually delivering. And inevitably that, you know, the content is probably something you just know instinctively. It's actually your, your, how you're presenting, know your audience, who's going to be there, who's the person who might be a disruptor that you can pick off earlier. And uh, as you said, be aware, be more self-aware about you know, some of those silly things that you do on your body language or habits. And, and I must admit, in preparing the content, I've been, I can think of presenting to clients at certain point, particularly if the client I know really well, love a consulting assignment, you're thinking, okay, I've got these six individuals in the leadership team. I'm going in there to sell them this particular concept. Okay. What's the angle that each of those people are going to come from? If I put this on the slide, oh, what, what's Jim going to think about that? What's Mary, the head of HR, going to say about uh, this particular thing that's really, go- really going to affect the people policy in the organization? Always thinking not about their content, but about the way that people are going to react to the content. What questions are naturally going to come along? How are you going to keep people on the front foot and agreeing with you rather than dropping into an argument in the lead presentation? Yeah, and I think it's that. It's also not being worried that you know, you're scared about a presentation or you, know, you fear particular things. I mean, I think that's a healthy attribute. You know, if we're all going into presenting to the board um, completely chilled and lying back, then probably there might be something else that's wrong. Um, you know, you, you've got to almost feel that fear to be able to be successful. Tony, there's the flip side of feeling that fear. You've got to avoid stressing yourself out too much, burning yourself out, and so on. So what does Tony Betts do to stop getting overstressed or burnt out? I think a lot of it is just, I mean, I I try and exercise a lot, eat well, drink well. I think one of the things I noticed in one of my years at study group when I first went there, it was so busy. I forgot to just drink water all day and then wondered why I had a headache after lunchtime. So, you know, just doing some of those simple things. I think also just feeling confident in yourself. So if you've, you know, particularly if you're going into a a meeting, you know, make sure you feel comfortable in yourself. So, you know, we were talking the other day about with the new virtual world, do you have to wear suits and do you have to wear your sort of dress shoes? Or And actually the sort of feedback that we came round back to the loop was just 
wear what you feel comfortable in. You know, it may be that there's certain places that are just wearing jeans now versus sort of suits. But actually, if you're you're feeling confident in yourself, it's going to come across. So I think a lot of that is just making sure that you've got time to time to get some fresh air, time to relax, not overthink things. Your inner chatterbox can be the worst, worst enemy of yourself. How can you almost quieten down your inner chatterbox and not overthink things before particular presentations and, and again, give, getting some fresh air and doing things that you enjoy and having that balance? I think a lot of us have a lot of things to do and time restriction is, the, is one of our biggest enemies. But actually, we just need to make sure that we, we're not burning out by doing, balancing our life off of the things that we like to do making sure that we're looking after each other and ourselves. Brilliant. So, Tony, you're about to step into a new role. What the big challenge is going to be? So the business has grown exponentially over the last few months from multiple acquisitions, and their latest one that they did two weeks ago was almost doubling the size of the business. So I think those first 100 days are going to be even more critical than ever having a look and evaluating the finance team, making sure that the, you've got the right people on the right seats. You've got enough of the people that actually need to support the business's growth and going forward. So I think, for example, one of the, the key things is that because it's the finance team is built up from acquisition, there's a lot of people in the sort of finance control area, but very few people in the, the sort of FP&A business partnering. So I think, again, that could that's going to be a challenge, but also opportunity for hopefully some of the staff there that want to get into that area. System's definitely going to be a big one because they have got a system that they implemented a few years ago. But again, because of the acquisitions, not a lot of them are, have moved over. So there's going to be a, a lot of um, having a look at the, the technology and, and utilising that. And then obviously linked to that, some of the processes. And I think the bigger thing is going to be that so the business is looking to, to do a transaction, hopefully in 18 months time, it's probably going to be an IPO. And, and I think the biggest shift is going to be starting people on that journey now, straight away, even before the 100 days sort of get started, almost thinking about well, what's it going to mean to be you know, potentially a listed business, go through a big IPO transaction. What does that mean? And, and make sure that that sort of vision, vision is very clear and supported by the, the actual team being involved in that straight away. Sounds like quite a challenge. I know it's very exciting though, Kevin, very exciting. Once again, it's all going to be about people and soft skills. Absolutely. And I think, the, I mean, the business's culture is, and that was one of the reasons for, for joining the company rather than I had some offers for CFO roles um, directly. But actually one of, the, one of the things for this was having that sort of softer landing into the role seeing how much work it needs to be. But actually, the culture of the business is phenomenal. And the interviewees that, that went through, I, I sort of got interviewed by five different people, including the CEO, CFO, uh, COO, uh, Chief Growth Officer. And actually, all of them had that, that sort of very clear message about the USP of the culture. So again, it's going to be a great opportunity, but soft skills and that relationship and Coming into a very established senior management team and making a difference is going to be is going to be key. Tony, that sounds like a fantastic challenge coming up. Wish you every success as you take on that role. And huge, huge thank you for being this week's guest on the Grow CFO Show. Thank you, Kevin. My pleasure. Mm-hmm.